Hey, this is Homer Hargrove. I'm the pastor of Grape Top Church, and this is our podcast. I want to thank you for connecting with our family today, and I hope this message inspires you and that it makes a difference in your life. Enjoy the message. Um, we are starting this new series, Running with Horses, Running with Horses, and I could barely outrun, uh, outrun some dogs, okay, <laughs> depending on what kind of dog it is, and when it comes to running with horses, this whole month, we're going to be talking about burnout and rest. The majority of the time, we're going to be talking about burnout, but we're going to, we're going to also talk about rest. And I was even telling my wife last night that we really need a whole month to really go into rest, but we're going to, we're going to take a time to talk about it this month. But today, our main focus when it comes to burnout is because there's three major types of burnout that we go through. There's being discouraged, there's, uh, there's being uh, um, drained, and there's also being unmotivated. And I like to put them in the order of dra- uh, discouraged, unmotivated, and drained, because those are the three ways you could feel like a dud, like you feel like you're not working right, and that's what burnout is. And today <laughs> we're gonna focus specifically on being discouraged. And I want to ask you this question, how can you bounce back from being discouraged? How can you bounce back from being discouraged? And for some of us, we, we try to cope with discouragement. For others, we try to bounce back. But which way really works when dealing with discouragement? Is it just trying to numb the pain of discouragement? Is it trying to just get like a rush of adrenaline to just beat your head against the wall a little bit longer to see if it'll give out? I feel like life is like that sometimes. Or you just feel like you're beating your head against the wall, <laughs> waiting for the wall to give up. And, you know, the, the, now that I'm a dad, I've gone through this new phase of feeling this unique ability to be able to fix things. I've never really explored it too much before, but now I have like all of a sudden when it comes to like paying for something to get fixed or trying to fix it myself, I'm like, well, why can't I do that? I'm a freaking dad now. Like I can do anything. And, and, uh, it, it went into, you know, like fixing little things at the house, like fixing our toilets. And, you know, if you've ever repaired something before, it's one of the best feelings in the world. I used to be a jet engine mechanic. I had no mechanical skills, but so beware next time you're on a plane. But the the feeling of just like being able to take something apart and put it back together and it work when it was once broken, it feels so good. And I'm at our house, I've been fixing toilets, vacuums. I mean, just like, you know, little stuff, but I've been becoming pretty proud of it. And I ran into this this issue that I told you guys at the beginning of the year that remember how I told you that I cracked my screen for the first time on my phone and it was just like uh, it was just completely shattered first time I ever cracked my screen and I've just been dealing with that it's just like you just learn to live with it right I totally understand any Star Wars fans here all right only two three so anyone listening online that's Star Wars fan you might get this and in the episode, the the episode where Kylo Ren 
kills Han Solo, and he says, he tells Han Solo that I have to do something, but I don't know if I have the strength to do it. And he ends, ends up being killing his dad so that he wouldn't feel the conflict to go to the light. Like it, that conflict within him, like I'm so afraid that I might actually jump to the other side. I know exactly what he meant once I broke my phone. <laughs> because I no longer needed a case. I, the case was making me feel protected. Like, oh, well, this will protect my phone. I even had the tempered glass on top of the screen. I, when I dropped it, the tempered glass screen protector was completely intact. It was just everything underneath was shattered. And so once it was all shattered, it was like, well, I don't need a phone case. I don't need a screen protector. It's, I knew what Kylo Ren was talking about. Some of you are like, that doesn't make sense at all. I'm going to keep telling that joke until somebody gets it. But <laughs> I get it. Thank you. Thank you. That's all I need in my heart. <laughs> Talk about being discouraged. <laughs> um, but... So I've been dealing with it. I've been like developing astigmatism just from trying to read on my phone. It's all shattered and cracked. And I got, I ended up just thinking to myself, well, how much does a screen cost anyway? I could go to the guys at the mall and they charge like 50 bucks for the, the screen repair. So the screen must be like a fraction of that if that's the case. And so I looked it up and I found screens for like 20 bucks and it came with like the little screwdrivers and everything and i was like well i'm sure i could find this out on youtube and do it myself anyone ever thought that before you just do it yourself you just figure it out well <coughs> i i was just like having that in my mind i was like i think i'm gonna just do that and then i started thinking well with all my kids too like when they crack their screens i'll be able to just repair their phones i'm this is like a an investment right here of learning this skill and I was thinking about getting like the, the whole tool set, like there's a $20 tool set that came with all the like gadgets that you would ever need. But I was like, well, the screen, this, for, the screen alone costs $16 with the, tool set, the little tool set that says this is all you need, only $4 more. So I just got this simple $20 set, right? And once I started taking this screen apart, I quickly realized as I started that I did not have all the tools I needed to finish the job. Barely even to start the job. I ended up using my Leatherman to pry off the screen from the case. And I was like, well, the screen's already damaged anyway. Like, what more can I hurt? And so even though I was intimidated, I was like, let me just press through. And I then started learning how more intricate <laughs> a smartphone is on the inside. And the little connections and the wires are actually paper thin and it's really easy to just tear it and just ruin your whole phone, your whole device. And the screws that are inside the phone, they're actually about the size of a period on a textbook. They're tiny and they actually are all different sizes. And so you have to remember wh wh how to put them in which hole because they're not all the same. And I was like, well, I can do all that, right? Like, I'll, you know, I can just put it nice like that. And then I dropped a screw. And I was like, well, I'm sure it'll be okay. And then, like, a little bit later, I dropped another screw. I was like, all right. Like, <laughs> this is kind of getting nervous. And halfway through, I realized that not only did I have to replace the screen, but I had to replace all the components on the screen, too, like the front speaker, the front-facing camera, the touch ID. And I was like, 
oh shoot. And halfway through I had it all like, like opened up like a surgery table and I was like, I don't think I can finish this. And I was getting so mad. You ever been like just mad and you don't, you can't really do anything about it? That's what it was me and my wife was like, hey, it's taking longer than expected. You almost done. I was like, just give me a minute. And I was really, guys, I was right about to give up right there. And I was just going to sweep it all into the trash can and say, I'm going to just have to get a new phone. <laughs> but there's this little tiny part of me that said, let's just see what happens. Let's just keep going. And it took like three times as long to, to finish it when I was replacing. Like, it, You have to like, not only is it unscrewing things, but there's adhesive to the wires that are paper thin that tear easily. There's all these little like extra things that I didn't anticipate and I didn't have any of the tools for. And there's a couple parts where I was like, well, I probably tore that, so I just won't have a front-facing camera. <laughs> like, oh, I probably messed that up. I, I'll just, have, I won't be able to use my Touch ID anymore. Like, I was just, like, as I was going, I was like, well, that's broken probably. And once I put it all back together, I maneuvered a couple screws to try to replace the ones that I dropped. And, you know, I was like, we'll just see. And I put it all back and it turned on. And so the fact that it turned on and it was like a new screen, I was like, hell yeah, <laughs> this is crazy. And then I tested out all the components and they all worked fine. And it, I went from being literally halfway through so discouraged to where I was gonna just give up and throw away the whole phone. I was like, I'm, there's no way. To where I just ended up taking the little steps and just saying, let me, let me just see how it turns out. To where afterwards, I was like, man, I'm the boss. Give me everybody's phone. I'm going to fix them right now. Like, you got a little neck. Let me fix that for you. And I felt completely, I bounced back. You know what I'm saying? And I feel like so many times we were waiting for that bounce back moment. You're like, that was a really long story just to say bounce back. Sometimes that's what we're really waiting for is that moment to just feel like everything worked out. I just needed to press through a little bit more. I just needed to take one more step and it was all gonna work out. But I feel like when it comes to burnout, it, that discouragement goes past that level. Y'all know what I'm saying? It's that moment to where you've already taken the other steps, you've already pressed through a little bit more and it just seems like you're, you're still not there yet. You're, you're not bouncing back at all it just feels like you're getting used to the floor. Y'all know what I'm saying? And I want to read y'all an entire story about Elijah real quick. It's the reason I want to read all of the story to you is to really give you, uh, I, I love being able to share stories rather than just bits and pieces of scripture. Y'all know what I'm saying? And so I want you to listen to this story. It's about Elijah and it really, I feel like it really, shows the aspect of how blinding the pain is of altered success that was not expected. And so I'm going to read y'all in 1st Kings uh 1st 1st Kings chapter 18 starting in verse 16. All right? In this story Elijah had just Pray. It's been th about three and a half years that there is no rain in the entire land of Israel. There, is, even though Israel was supposed to be a nation of God, um, Jezebel, 
Queen Jezebel and King Ahab had promoted all kinds of pagan worship in the land to where paganism and uh, and evil kind of worship was prominent instead of a holy worship of God. And just to give you a background, when I say like pagan worship and when we read about the, we're going to be looking at the prophets of Baal and uh, Asherah and uh, their uh, prophets of Asherah, the ways that these people would worship these gods was through child sacrifices, blood blood sacrifices, cutting themselves and 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 draining the blood into a pan. That was like a form of worship. Um, killing babies. There's one of the ways that they would kill these babies as a sacrifice is that there would be a, a metal statue of Baal like this, and they would. Put the they would get the statue red hot with fire where the the arms are red hot and they would lay the baby on the arms, and and the baby would be burned alive through the searing hot metal, and uh, as the as the babies were screaming they'd play these drums for worship and they'd play the drums as loud as they could so that the the mothers wouldn't uh, wouldn't be in so much agony from hearing their child screaming like that, you know so this is not just like. Oh well, you know they just worship that way, and we worship this way. It's all kind of the same thing. No, it's like very, very intense in the forms that they try to worship. Y'all get what I'm saying? And so, when it comes to this story, I wanted to give you all that as a backdrop. Elijah has been has gotten this call from God, and he's and he go in this part of the story. He he's been hunted by the king. For a long time now, the king has been wanting him dead because the king doesn't want any any prophet of God that speaks against the king or speaks against the forms of worship that they have. And at this point in the story, Elijah goes to one of the, the commanders and says, take me to the king and I'm going to confront him and all the prophets and we'll see who the true God is of Israel. And so that's kind of where we're at. He's been on the run. Now he's confronting the king. And so, starting off in, in this chapter, it says, So Obadiah went to tell Ahab that Elijah had come. And Ahab went out to meet Elijah. When Ahab saw him, he exclaimed, So it is really you, you troublemaker of Israel. I have made no trouble for Israel, Elijah replied. You and your family are the troublemakers, for you have refused to obey the commands of the Lord and have worshipped the images of Baal instead. Now summon all Israel to join me at Mount Carmel, along with the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who are supported by Jezebel. So Ahab summoned all the people of Israel and the prophets to Mount Carmel. Sorry, Carmel, not Carmel. Then Elijah stood in front of them and said, How much longer will you waver, hobbling between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. But the people were completely silent. Then Elijah said to them, I'm the only prophet of the Lord who is left. But Baal has 450 prophets. Now bring two bulls. The prophets of Baal may choose whichever one they wish to and cut it into pieces and lay it on the wood of their altar. But without setting it to fire, fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood on the altar, but not set fire to it. Then call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. 
The God who answers by setting fire to the wood is the true God. Uh, and all the people agreed. So at this point, y'all, y'all were with me, right? In this part of the story, he pretty much made this giant contest of gods um, in front of all of the people with all the prophets. And at this point in the story, Elijah is the only prophet uh, of God in the nation because King Ahab and Queen Jezebel literally killed all the other prophets. It's equivalent if if our our democracy turned into a kingship and they started killing all the all the pastors and priests that were Christian uh, or a Christian denomination. And you could only worship other gods, but you weren't allowed to worship this God. Does that make sense? So that's where we're at. And now continuing on, it says, Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, You go first, for there are many of you. Choose one of the bulls and prepare it and call on the name of your God, but do not set fire to the wood. So they prepared one of the bulls and placed it on the altar. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning until noontime, shouting, O Baal, answer us! But there was no reply of any kind. Then they danced, hobbling around the altar they had made. About noontime, Elijah began mocking them. You have to shout louder, he scoffed, for surely he is a god, perhaps he is daydreaming, or is relieving himself, or maybe he is away on a trip or is asleep and needs to be awakened. So they shouted louder and followed their normal custom. They cut themselves with knives and swords until the blood gushed out. They raved all afternoon until the time of the evening sacrifice, but still there was no sound, no reply, no response. Then Elijah called to the people, come over here. They all crowded around him, and as he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been torn down, he took twelve stones, one to represent each of the tribes of Israel, and he used the stones to rebuild the altar in the name of the Lord. Then he dug a trench around the altar large enough to hold about three gallons. He piled wood on the altar, cut the bull into pieces, and laid the pieces on the wood. Then he said, Fill four large jars with water and pour the water over the offering in the wood. Now keep in mind that this is all during an extreme drought, that water was the most expensive commodity at the time because it had not rained in three years. And so he's saying, give a sacrifice that's of water, something that's in, that's, that is scary to just, the thought of just wasting water on the ground was very terrifying in that time. After they had done this, he said, do the same thing again. And when they, had, they were finished, he said, now do it a third time. So they did as he said, and the water ran around the altar and even filled the trench. At the usual time for offering this evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet walked up to the altar and prayed, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, prove today that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant. Prove that I have done all this at your command, O Lord. Answer me. Answer me so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have brought them back to yourself. Immediately the fire of the Lord flashed down from heaven and burned up the young bull, the wood, the stones, and the dust. 
It even licked up all the water in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell face down on the ground and cried out, The Lord, He is God. Yes, the Lord is God. Then Elijah commanded, Seize all the prophets of Baal. Don't let a single one escape. So the people seized them all, and Elijah took them down to the Kishon Valley and killed them there. Then Elijah said to Ahab, Go get something to eat and drink, for I hear a mighty rainstorm coming. So Ahab went to eat and drink, and but Elijah climbed to the top of Mount Carmel and bowed low to the ground and prayed with his face between his knees. Then he said to his servant, Go and look out towards the sea. The servant went and looked, then returned to Elijah and said, I don't see anything. Seven times Elijah told him to go and look, and finally the seventh time his servant told him, I saw a little cloud about the size of a man's hand rising from the sea. Then Elijah shouted, Hurry to Ahab and tell him, Climb into your chariot and go back home. If you don't hurry, the rain will stop you. And as soon and soon the sky was black with clouds, a heavy wind brought a terrific rainstorm, and Ahab left quickly to Jezreel. Then the Lord gave special strength to Elijah. He tucked his cloak into his belt and ran ahead of Ahab's chariot all the way to the entrance of Jezreel. I want to stop here before we go on, because that was a lot, right? We saw a very interesting story at play. We saw one, the major tone to this for Elijah is that he had a major win in something that he had been praying for and waiting for when all odds were against him. All odds were against him. He came out victorious. It was just like a miraculous event to where not only this, this big showdown in front, in front of all of Israel between him and all these hundreds of other prophets, but all the way to where he even prays for the, the, the drought to end that day. This drought that has been there for three and a half years and he prays for it to end and all of a sudden a rainstorm comes. And then it says that he gave him this special like super duper strength to where he outruns a chariot. You know, these are like, this is like a lot to take in for a day, right? I could barely take my girls out all day without being exhausted. And this is all going on in one day. And starting off even with just like the, the these prof, this showdown with the prophets and, and Elijah, if Elijah would have lost, if he lost that showdown, they would have killed him right away. And when we, at first glance, when you graze over the story, it's like, well, that's kind of messed up. They just killed all these, like these religious people. And it seems like almost like, uh, like just crazy. But I want you to take in the perspective that even as Elijah's heart, these are, these are people that persuaded an entire nation to kill their children as worship. You know, I, I feel like when it comes to like child predators, people usually have a heavier tone like in our society. Like if you ever watch that show To Catch a Predator, and my favorite part of that show is when Chris Hansen says, well, you're free to go. There's nothing I can do to you. I'm just a news anchor. And then the, the child predator goes outside and gets tackled by the sheriff's department. That's my favorite part. And they get tased, they get maced, like it's the best. But then I hate the part where it says how much time they got and it's like they get less time than uh, uh, they get less time than someone that had just a, a gram of, of dope. They get barely any probation, any any jail time, and they were ready to just do horrible things to a child. And 
I feel like in our culture, there's a there's some a type of understanding that we know when you attack innocence, it's just wrong. It doesn't matter what religion you're a part of. It doesn't matter what where your background is. You just know that it's wrong, right? And so when you think about how these people persuaded children to be sacrificed and killed brutally, you know, it. there's a point where it's like enough is enough. And that's where this part of the story is for Elijah. And, and when you see this big turnaround for, for Elijah, it seems like the whole country is coming back. It even seems like Ahab like has some type of respect for him now. Like maybe like he's going to even not have to live in hiding anymore. Not have to run, like act like, you know, he has a police looking for him, waiting to kill him at any, any wrong spot, wrong time. And then this part of the story hits. If we just go uh, to the next chapter in chapter 19, it says, When Ahab got home, he told Jezebel everything Elijah had done, including the way he killed all the prophets of Baal. So Jezebel sent this message to Elijah. I, it's that you were right, I'm wrong. That's what we would expect, right? You ever get into a fight with somebody and you feel like you proved your point and you're like, all I need to do is tell them this and by the end of the conversation, they're going to tell me, you know what? I never saw it like that. You're completely right. Anyone thought that before, right before they got into a big fight? But what usually happens is this. May the gods strike me and even kill me if by this time tomorrow I've not killed you just as you've killed them. Elijah was afraid and fled for his life. He went to Beersheba, a town of Judah, and he left his servant there. Then he went on alone into the wilderness, traveling all day. He sat down under a solitary broom tree and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life, for I'm no better than my ancestors who have already died. All of that work, all of that waiting, you know, it was years that he was already living and hiding, being chased to be killed. And I feel like it's equivalent to how we feel in life sometimes where it seems like you're just waiting for that turnaround moment. You're waiting for that bounce back. You're just waiting for something to change and you feel like, man, then I'll finally be able to breathe again. If I just get that job, if I can just pay this bill, if I can get rid of this debt, man, then I'll be able to just breathe again. If I just work a little bit harder, I'll get that promotion, that raise that I really need. If I just make it to the summer, I can just make it. I'll be able to make it. And then after, and not only that, but he put all this work into it. He was grinding. Not was he just, he wasn't just waiting, but he was grinding putting in the grit, putting in the hard work to really earn something different for his life. And after everything that he worked for, it was like nothing had changed. Nothing had changed. And Jezebel said, may, may I even die if you don't die. <laughs> You're going to, just like before, nothing has changed. I'm still going to kill you. And I feel like it is so hard for Elijah to bask in the success of that day when he feels like nothing was accomplished. 
all of Israel said that they would recognize God as God again. That means that people were, were won back. They were saved from the grave and turning back to God. But how could, you, how could you really appreciate that when at the end of the day, there's crosshairs on you? You know, as a pastor, there, especially when we first started the church, I remember having different mentors in my life and accountability partners. And, and when they would check up on me and see how I was doing, I was like, well... If I didn't have to worry about my life, I'd really enjoy what I was doing. If I didn't have to worry about paying my bills, I'd really enjoy bringing people to Christ and seeing them find victory in their lives if I could just find victory in my life. And see, that's what Elijah's going through. Is he's helping everybody else around him, but his life still sucks. You feel like that, right? And when he prays that he wishes that he would just die, it's that it's that moment of pure discouragement to where everyone saw Elijah as a, as a successful person, a successful prophet. And it was just that one person that he couldn't please, that he couldn't get a breakthrough with, that was so discouraging that it didn't matter what everybody else said, what everybody else saw. All of his hard work was for nothing because the person that really mattered wouldn't see it, (coughs) wouldn't change. And I think that sometimes when we're trying to build something, I mean, whoever said, man, I really just enjoy living paycheck to paycheck. I love it. It's just, it makes life thrilling. (laughs) Am I going to be able to pay my bills this month? I don't know. (laughs) It's so fun. No one says that, right? Everyone wants to try to build something that lasts. Everyone wants to build something that lasts longer than this week, this day. And there's so often when we're trying to, we're trying to build something, <coughs> we're trying to work towards something, that it's like we're building sandcastles that keep getting washed away. Right? And what I want to project to you guys is that even though it feels like sandcastles, what you may actually be doing is laying a foundation instead. See, I feel like sometimes life is, we don't even know what we're building sometimes. We don't even realize what we're building. And we also don't realize what we're tearing down. And when you are, when you are putting all this effort, all this energy, and you have this idea of what you want this success to be like, you envision it as this finished house. You don't imagine it to be a floor plan. You don't imagine it to be a block of cement in the ground. And I feel like for me, what I've realized is when, even though I thought that I was building a house, like even for starting this church, I thought I was building a house, like building something I could see and it'd be pretty and nice. And I realized that I was laying foundation. I was, I was laying cement. And what's the hardest thing about laying cement is waiting for it to dry. You know why? 
It's because while you're waiting for it to dry, you can't do anything. You can't mess with it. You can't build on top of it. You can't do anything around it. You just have to wait for it to dry. And I think that that's what's hardest because you want to just finish it. You want to just, you want to already be at the finished product so bad, but the season in your life right now is waiting for the cement to dry. And when we don't realize that the cement is drying, it makes that discouragement so much heavier. And for Elijah at this part, he had this idea that, the whole, that everything was going to be turned around at that moment. But honestly, the turnaround for Israel, it, even when Jesus came, it was still a work in progress. That he finished the work on the cross, and even then, it's not done till judgment day. That's a long time of waiting for cement to dry, isn't it? And he wanted so badly for it to just be fixed already. He waited years and years for it to be fixed. And then to realize that you were just laying a section of cement. You know, when we understand that this success that we want is different than what we expected, it makes it a little easier to bear. Because you're not expecting something different. And even though it's painful to, to look at the success that you have to have first, it, make, it gives you just a little bit of courage to go to the next step, which is endurance. That means not giving up. And the unbelievable, the unbelievable endurance that's needed to keep going when you're not done yet. Y'all know what I'm saying? The moment you realize that I thought once I got my tax return, it was all my bills were going to be done. My debt was going to be done. It was going to all be fine. And you realize you're not done yet. And I want to skip down to 1 Kings 19, 15 through 16. After Elijah goes through this whole, this whole back and forth with God, we saw him at his lowest and God speaks to him. And at this point it says, then the Lord told him, Go back the same way you came and traveled to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive there, anoint Haziel to be king of Aram. Then anoint Jehu, grandson of Nimshi, to be king of Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shephat, from the town of Abel-Mohala, to replace you as my prophet. So, at the end of this whole big thing, this whole big part of this story, God pretty much tells him to go back and you're not done yet. I would have imagined that myself after this big like boxing match between gods, that that would have been like, like all right, like we won the round, KO. <laughs> we can go home. But to realize that he was not done yet and he's told to go back into Israel where Jezebel wants to kill him and continue to live like that and to go anoint the next king, to go anoint the next king over here and to go find your successor. Why do you need a successor to finish the work you started? And 
when he finds Elisha to follow him, notice that their names are very similar. Elijah finds Elisha, and he finds him, and it says that Elisha followed him for about eight years before Elijah was taken up to heaven. So when you think about he he was three years of drought, uh, so many years of dealing with this king that wanted to kill him, and out of those eight more years after this big battle between gods and all that, within those eight years, four of them, half of them were still under the same king that wanted to kill him. That's a long time, right? I, I, this year, I'm going to be married to my wife for eight years. So to think, eight more years till I can finally be at peace. That takes some endurance, doesn't it? It's almost like we think of success to be like getting a puppy. I just, like, it, it'll be good. Like, I can take care of a dog for a while. Like, you don't think that the dog's going to live past 10 years. After, like, three years, like, you're still here? Like, <laughs> golly, <laughs> can't you take a hint? Like, I, I got things to do. I can't always be taking care of this puppy. It it gets old fast, doesn't it? <laughs> and that's the way we imagine success to be like. But we we don't always... It's almost impossible to anticipate the endurance needed for a lifetime. How can you exp- how can you really think about the endurance to be 60 years old when you're only 20 years old? Can we really fathom that? No. It's like for me, when I had kids, I always thought I understood an idea of what it would be like to have kids. But... It wasn't until I had my first baby girl that I really knew the feeling, the emotions, the work that goes into having children. There's nothing that could have prepared me for it. And I got a dog before. I thought the dog would have helped. (laughs) There's nothing that prepares you before having kids. Just like getting married. Nothing really prepares you like getting married. That's right. It, It just... You can try to research it, ask about it, get an idea of it. But once you're actually married, it's just you realize, like, I had no idea what I was talking about. When it comes to kids, I had no idea what I was talking about. When it comes to me being a pastor, I had no idea what I was getting into. And when it comes into the endurance needed, are you not done yet? I joke with my wife about our kids. And I say, when do you think that we'll be able to stop taking care of them? She's like, the rest of our lives, what are you talking about? I was like, so like, public school? <laughs> like, do you think they'll start, when do you think they'll start taking care of themselves? <laughs> She's like, I don't think they ever will. <laughs> you, we're going to be there always. And it's so, it's almost like unfathomably true that for the rest of our lives, I'm going to be a dad. The rest of their lives, that's going to be their mom. That's going to be my daughter. Y'all get what I'm saying? There's no way I could even project how that is like until I experience it. And so I want to encourage you, those of y'all who've been discouraged, I, I really want to encourage you to press through. There's a scripture in Proverbs that says that a wicked person can fall once and never get up, but a godly person can fall seven, eight times and get back up every time. In these moments that we're discouraged like Elijah to where we want to die, 
Y'all know what that feels like. Where you want to, it's not even that you don't want to live anymore, but that you just can't bear the, the stress, the pain, the, all the ache and agony of your soul. You can't bear it on your shoulders any longer. That's why you want to die. Not that you don't want to live. You just can't take it anymore. And at that point of discouragement, I really believe that there's something with God that allows us the, the ability and grace to get back up seven more times. To get back up when we feel like we are on the rock bottom floor. Y'all know what I'm saying? And there's just, when it comes to bouncing back, getting out of this, this low that we're in, I don't want you to think of it as an adrenaline rush to just like, all right, this time I'm going to just hit it really hard so that, that way I can be done with it. Like the way that we hit diets, right? You, you, one diet messes up, and so we hit another diet. Like this time I'm going to do even less food, less, less this, less that. And I'm going to take it twice as serious this time to make up for the time I couldn't do it before. And we try to bounce back stronger than before, but then we end up just hitting the floor twice as hard, right? It's where it takes us, it took us one month to, to start a diet again. It takes us almost a year to, to start it again because we fell so hard on the ground. When I go to the gym with my wife, when I'm on that like last set, I'm trying to, I'm trying to just push one more rep out. I try to like get myself all psyched for that adrenaline. Like I'm going to just go at it and just like, this is going to happen. <laughs> and it just doesn't work sometimes. Instead of trying to just bounce back what I want y'all to get your mindset on is to see the unexpected power of consistency instead of a bounce back. The verse that inspired this series is in Jeremiah chapter 12, verse 5. And it says, If racing against mere men makes you tired, how will you race against horses? If you stumble and fall on open ground, how, what will you do in the thickets near the Jordan. And God is speaking to prophet Jeremiah saying, you got more to do. <laughs> there's, there's actually greater things than you expected for yourself. I have greater things in your life, more potential than you're able to see. And I know that you feel discouraged right now, but you got even greater things than what you're going through right now. The things that we go through at this moment are sometimes that cement drying so that we can stand on something later. Amen. It's so that we can to, to stand on t and catapult forward instead of just doing the same paycheck to paycheck lifestyle. And I want you to understand that. Think about any, any runners in here? All right, a couple of y'all. I did a half marathon in 2012. I know it's not a full. I'm going to do a full marathon one day just so I don't have to say half marathon anymore. Um, but I trained, uh, I trained for months for the half marathon to where right up to the point I would run 11 miles nonstop and I'd be like, fine. Like I'll, the people I'd run with, I would go back and run to them. So, and like, all right, let's, we'll run together to finish off. I was like, like let's go. When I went to, the, that was in Del Rio, Texas, it's mainly flat there. <laughs> the marathon was in Austin, <laughs> and that's hill country. And 
There were so many hills. And I'm not talking about little baby hills. I'm talking about like mountains of hills to where like, I don't even understand how cars can park on these hills without rolling back. Like their brakes have to be legit. And even though I could do 11 miles before, when I was doing this half marathon, I was like, like grunting. Like at, at first, all the adrenaline was like hitting me, like all these people around. And I'm like, all right, like, let's go. And I remember the, cause I, I had been running for so long. I was like, man, I'm at the pace. Like I'm at, I didn't, and I, I didn't have a phone. I wasn't listening to music. I'll just run without any music or anything. I didn't know what time it was. Uh, and I was like, man, I, I usually feel like this about the ninth mile. And I was like, I wonder, I'm probably at like the like seventh, ninth mile, probably. I was like, there's been, a, there's been some crazy hills. So I'm probably at the seventh. I pass a mile marker and it says a third mile. I was like, oh my God. First of all, why would you put a mile marker for every three miles? Like, what, what's wrong with you? And then the second part, I was like, oh my, like, I'm way tired than before. And I knew at that moment, if I'm going to finish this thing, I have to get a really consistent pace because I'm already exhausted. And at that moment, of discouragement where you realize you're a lot farther behind than you realize you thought you were almost done and you're like I'm just getting started that's discouraging but if you just press through and have it in your mind that you got you do have the endurance to make it you do you got what it takes Amen. and you just need to set in yourself I'm gonna just be consistent with what I with, with what I got to do and I'm going to take one step after another. I'm not going to go faster than I can go. And I'm not going to go slower than I need to. I'm going to just keep going at what is right right now. I'm going to be consistent because I'm in it for the long run. Y'all feel what I'm saying? And whether it's your finances, whether it's your family, whether it's your career, whether it's any kind of success you're thinking, or whether it's your Christian walk, I mean, don't you feel like that at times of your Christian walk where you just want to be in this place with God where you're satisfied and you feel discouraged that you're not there yet. You're still dealing with, with things that trip you up that you thought you would have been done with by now. Just keep that tread. Just keep that tread and be consistent. And don't look for that bounce back. It's not really real. Y'all know what I'm saying? It's not. It's the people, when we think of these success stories, it's people that are consistent over a long period of time to where it seems like they're overnight success, but it's just that small consistency that they hit over and over and over. I want y'all to all bow your heads and close your eyes. <coughs> it is a difficult thing to believe that patience is required for the rest of our lives. And it's hard to think that God will give us the grace to endure when we're barely making it right now. But I want to let you know, I believe in you. I know that God will, will do, finish the work He started in you. And you do got what it takes. You're not too weak. You're not too small. You got what it takes. 
So right now, with you in this, this moment of thought, if you're here and maybe this, this has just been hitting you and you need God to just reassure you, you've been discouraged, maybe even deeply discouraged, and you need God to just tell you something, make you feel something, say something to encourage you, I want you to just slip up your hand. Amen. God, you see every single hand that went up right now. And you see every person that's watching online. And God, you don't need a, pray, a pretty prayer. You don't need us to jump and dance around like the prophets of Baal. In fact, you don't even require us to drop, a, not even drop a blood. You don't even want one drop of blood from us. And sometimes we've convinced ourselves in our mind that that's what you want from us, is our pain. You want us to be in pain. But we see even in this story that that is not what you desire. You're not satisfied with us being in pain, but it hurts your heart to see us in pain. And you see the discouraged people here, Lord, and you know what they need to keep going. Some of them need just a word from you. Some of them just need to feel your presence, God. Your presence is enough to just to help them to keep going. God, some of them need something to happen this week to show that there's a turnaround, that you see them, that you're finishing the work. God, whatever it is that these people need, I believe that it's unique to each individual. And I believe that you have the ability and the power to answer what they need. Give them the grace, Lord. Give them the grace to endure, to get back up, to not give up. I pray that you bless these people and that you give them a true, genuine, and authentic peace that covers them, that strengthens them. In the name of Jesus. With that being said, we're going to go into our time of worship. And I want you to feel the freedom to worship with whatever way that you need to worship God right now. Whatever way you need to connect with Him. I want you to just have a moment with Him. Whether it's standing up or sitting down. Whether it's singing out loud. Whispering out to yourself saying nothing at all. I want you to just have a moment with God. And I believe that worship is something so strong that it doesn't even make sense, but we can just have a time of worship and what we really were wanting from God is answered in that time. So that being said, let's all, let's all just jump into that. I hope you enjoyed the message today. If you did, there's a couple things that you could do to connect. First is to subscribe to our show so that the most recent episode will always be in your feed, ready when you are. And second is if this ministry has impacted you and you'd like to help us continue to reach others, you can click the link in the description or visit our website, gravetop.com, and you can give now. I'll see you next time on the Gravetop Church Podcast.